Welcome to Tales from the Bridge. Today, Sam and myself sit down with Rika Ioki, and this was one of the most sweet and genuine conversations we've ever had on the show, so we really appreciate Rika and the time that she gave us. Listeners, we reached a new milestone in downloads recently, so we just want to say thank you for listening. All over the world, people are listening to the show from time to time. Thank you so much. All right, everyone's waiting for us. Let's make our way over to the bridge. If you enjoyed our review of the novel Light from Uncommon Stars, or you can read a thumbnail, you'll be as excited as we are that Rika Aoki is joining us today. Rika is a poet, composer, teacher, and novelist. Light from Uncommon Stars was an Alex and otherwise award winner and a finalist for the Hugo, Locus, and Ignite Awards. Rika is also a two-time Lambda Literary Award finalist for her collections Seasonal Velocities and Why Dust Shall Never Settle Upon This Soul, and her first novel, Yumila Hilo, called one of the 10 best books set in Hawaii by Book Riot. She has been recognized by the California State Senate for her extraordinary commitment to the visibility and well-being of transgender people, and is currently a professor of English at Santa Monica College. Thank you for taking the time to join us, and welcome to the show. You're so welcome. Thank you very much for, for uh, just having me here and for everybody listening. I, I wonder if you could tell us a bit about, like, maybe give us a bit of an overview about your career trajectory as a writer and a musician, because I feel like there's there's a lot there that that people don't know if they haven't read your bio. And I do encourage people to go to your website. So, it's uh, the violin has really been a wonderful, wonderful thing to learn. I picked it up as I was writing Light from Uncommon Stars because I it was part of my book research, and I had no idea how to play the violin. Um, you know, just like three years ago, four years ago, I had no idea what was going on. Um, and so I, which is kind of a strange little blind spot because I can play flute and piano and guitar and other things, but there was a, but the violin was always quite intimidating. And uh, I think part of me deciding to write and use the violin was, um, using my writing career as an excuse to confront one of my big fears and big desires within music, which is to learn the violin. And it turns out, as so many things that one is afraid of do, that there was nothing to be afraid of in the first place. It's uh, It was just a beautiful, beautiful, it, it's been a beautiful journey. In fact, um, I still play and I'm going, I'm playing Christmas carols right now, getting ready because I'm probably going to bother friends and play, uh, this Christmas. And uh, it is uh, the Katrina's experience that one can sing through the violin is directly a result of me going, oh, my God, I can play. I can play anything that Maria Callas ever sang. And I can sing it because I my my voice finally reaches when you're a trans woman, when you're a trans man, the testosterone drops your vocal cords and suddenly you, you drop an octave or so, you drop a bit. It doesn't work that way with estrogen. It doesn't go higher. You can't. And so I'm stuck with the voice I have. I will never be able to sing through, the, through my vocal cords the way a soprano might, even though in my heart of hearts, I would love, to, I, I think I could hit those notes. Well, I can with a violin. And in the same way, right, as we read and as we as we write, we may never be able to hit those heights, but we can with our art. 
And I think that's what makes art so beautiful. This is what makes our writing so beautiful. We might not be able to um, ever like solve that argument or or solve that problem or see that new thing. But um, when we when we write and when we read, we can we can do it through that. It's uh, it's still I've been writing all my life, and it's still freaking magical to me. Is it so? Is it fair to say then that that writing allowed you to take control and control your own narrative in that really tiny space that is my universe? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my characters got to say the things I could never say. They got to have the opportunities I could never have. They could say that thing and not worry about getting hit. They could. They could. They could go places. They could jump in a car. They could. They could go shopping and buy whatever they wanted. Um, or not buy whatever they wanted, but then have that one person as a cashier who's your real friend to go, oh, I gotcha. And so what what writing and I think uh, art does for marginalized groups, but you know, bring it, bring it back to since you're interviewing me personally, what it re- yeah, I agree with you. What, what it did for me was it gave me a place to work out all of these accusations and one by one kind of write my way out of them and the story would hold water and the and the subject agreed with the verb and and the arc was nice and there it is it works out it was almost like proof that you didn't have to be that afraid of me you didn't have to judge me that way here it's worked out here's my proof almost like you know that we have mathematical proofs this was almost these were almost narrative proofs See, we can go to outer space. We can be astronauts. We can do this. We, you know, it was like Star Trek, right? When you first saw, um, when you saw Mr. Sulu as your helmsman, and the ship didn't go right into a right into a black hole, or or die, you, you knew it was theoretically possible that we could have this. When Lieutenant Uhura was being um, the communications officer, and the ship was still functioning, that was narrative proof that it could be done. And I, I just love that stuff. And so when I was working on things, these narrative proofs that, hey, Trantor will still be Trantor. I think something that for those listeners out there who have not read any of Rika's work yet, it's very optimistic. It's very inspirational. It's actually very happy. Uh, There are sad moments. There are sad anecdotes, but it is all made up for in a very positive way. Can you tell us about that, Rika? And how you, you must be writing for people to make them feel better and you're not really focusing on uh, the dark stuff as much as you're focusing on improvement. Oh, of course. Um, And thanks for that. Yeah, if you're just listening to me right now, it sounds like doom and gloom. But I've actually, some of my work's actually been like called squeak horror and hope horror and all of that kind of stuff. I'm not sure how much I agree with that, but, you know, Charlie Jane Anders said it, so I'm not going to argue Charlie Jane Anders. But um, I really, I believe though that what is even more destructive than somebody who is against you is somebody who says they're for you, but abandons you when you need them. When somebody is against you, you can deal with it. When somebody says they're for you, but then abandons you, then you're not prepared and and, and you can really hurt. And stories can do the same thing. What hurts about somebody like uh, J.K. Rowling was not like, now that everybody knows she doesn't like people like me, that's okay. I mean, got it. But when she first 
came out that way, a lot of people felt really hurt because here was somebody who created a universe that a lot of us thought we were welcome in, but suddenly we were not. Um, writing pretty stories is easy. It's going to tell you, full stop. Writing pretty stories is easy. Everybody knows what a happy ending should be. Simple. However, an authentic happy ending where you can go through with open eyes and open hearts, um, the cruelty that life can deal to people just because they happen to be a little bit different, that's a bad place to be. And if I can come there and reach the reader there and say, I share some of that experience you do. We aren't the same. We are not the same. No two people are the same. And I want to value your unique experience. But let me tell you that I hurt too. And maybe in my story, uh, we can meet over our, you know, over these injuries and over these pains. And then when the story becomes uplifting, maybe you too can rise on this thermal and maybe we can together have this happy ending, at least for this time in these pages. At least I can give that to you. But I need to reach down before I can lift up. If I'm just lifting up, I'm stepping on the people that I really love. So that's why all of my work that I have ever written and any work that I produce is always going to contain a little bit of that. You know, the reason we can enjoy the blue sky is uh, we know what it's like to be underground when people are burying us. So, um, so that's kind of, so that's where I am. In fact, I feel that a lot of the, a lot of what people talk about when they talk about hope core and they might sometimes blow it off as being frivolous they don't read the stories completely if you read somebody like charlie you read charlie jane you read becky chambers or you read these people they under the sub un, you know, read the subtext there is so yeah. much hurt there becky chambers's work is tragic except for the fact that it happens to be hopeful and have a lot of beautiful and have a lot of robots and tea but Think about how they got there. And so that's why uh, I, I just feel that um, hope that reaches people doesn't reach people because they had happy endings. Hope that, re um, you know, ha hope that reaches people and good and stories of hope that reach people do so because they were there and they met them eye to eye, heart to heart when they needed them. It, it creates the conditions for for kindness, I think, in your storytelling and Becky Chambers as well. It definitely jumps out in, in that in that same sense. And I and I and I think you know when I think of uh, TJ Clune's another one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and when I think of Light from Uncommon Stars, it, it goes back to what you're talking about these rich stories, and mm -hmm. it is this profoundly rich story, and a kind of proof of concept that I think you've alluded to here that's happening in sci-fi where anyone can come in and demonstrate that they feel that they're that there are people that they are these are fully fully realized people and 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 I think you know with Becky there is just a normalization of of uh, different ways to be and in light from a common stars in particular it's uh, I've I like to call it a beautiful mashup where you bring in 
science fiction, but you also bring in religion and this this there is this strong religious overtone mm-hmm. and i don't know that i've seen that and i I've, i'm very curious to know how you got there um just I, I got there by being me and growing up and just feeling that i was going to write my story no matter what have you ever heard, we have this, um, I, where are you in the, in, in the uh, world right now? Where are you speaking from? Uh, we're in Guelph, Ontario. Okay. In, um, howdy up there. Uh, <laughs> here in, in um, Southern California, where we have, um, you might have heard that sometimes the United States has um, border disagreements with Mexico. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe you've heard about this. <laughs> it's, it's come up. It's come up. <laughs> uh, and, and one thing that you hear is we did not cross the borders, the borders crossed us. You know, there were people, borders are things that other people have come in and arbitrarily used to divide what used to be contiguous contiguous land. It's the same thing for identity as well. When you are um, somebody who is, um, is an American, they're an American until they're Asian. And now there has to be a place where they can be Asian and American. And suddenly there's a border. There's no border. There's no um, dotted line here that separates the Asian from the American part. It's just that people tend to see two different things or um, somebody who likes mathematics and, and rugby, you know, they're good for them you go I don't you know there's no and so we all have borders that cross us genre fiction works the same way too fiction of genre literatures work the same way where does a poem stop being a poem and start being you know when does a prose poem uh you know start stop being a prose poem and start being a short story flash fiction when does that ever happen you know when people at the bookstore say it is I don't know and in the same way, um, why not have religion in your science and why not have fantastical elements? I know that I teach English and I'm very analytical when I teach English. I talk about subject, verb, object and topic sentences. But then when I'm teaching, when I'm leading a poetry workshop, that all goes out the window. And then when I go to my family in Hawaii, um, you can't even recognize that I'm speaking proper English. You wouldn't even know that I'm an English teacher. All of these are not a mashup. I'm not a mashup. I'm just um, one of those really cool creatures that hold incredible multitudes of being and brilliance, which are called human beings. In the golden age of science fiction, we had hard science fiction, soft science fiction. We had fantasy. We had sword and sorcery. And I think a lot of these very tried and true paths worked because so many of the writers grew up with the same shows, grew up with the same sorts of culture, and and these were natural. But as you, as we, uh, not you, as we, we're all science fiction fans, as we um, bring in writers who come from different parts of the world, different parts of our cities, different parts of our culture, um, we're going to see that there's going to be a pushback on a lot of what we thought were um, incontrovertible. We are, I, I don't see that big of a difference between science and religion because I'm not Christian. I didn't see God versus science. I'm, I'm a freaking Buddhist. I mean, whatever, science, good, it's all karma. And so I don't see the natural, I don't see that uh, opposition. So it's a lot easier for me to deal with, I think. 
maybe I'm just in a science fiction bubble, but I, I, I really see the science fiction space, the, the publishers and the authors like yourself, Rika, there's a, there's a very welcoming, inclusive, uh, accepting and very progressive politically and in so many ways, progressive thinking. Why, why is uh, a question that I think we like to ask sometimes is what, what's the importance of science fiction? And you're just making me want to tweak this a little bit to say, why is science fiction so progressive and healthy? You're a reader. Look in the mirror. It's because of the readers. The readers vote with their reviews, the books they share, the books they buy. I love, uh, one of the things about being a science fiction writer is I get to stand here at the mic and listen, and people are listening and it's just, I can just say, I love the readers in the science fiction and the fantasy communities. It's nothing we did. As a writer, I will tell you, it is beyond my power to get published. I cannot, through any force of brilliance on my own, get published. Somebody has to believe in me. An editor from Tor, you know, Lindsay Hall, who just won the Hugo, by the way, um, is my editor, and she believes in me. Why is she even why is she even there? Because she got hired by Tor. Why did Tor even hire her? Because it's a business and it wants to answer the needs of the fans and hires editors who they feel have their um, their fingers to the wind, know which way the wind is blowing and are, are, have good rapport and with the, with the fans and readers and what people want to read. And what do people want to read? Apparently, they want to read, read books about trans violin players who occasionally have donuts and, and, <laughs> and, and, you know, deals with the devil. It hints at so much more. Uh, I want to just bring in uh, Lan Tran, uh, who is a, a retired starship captain mm -hmm. and, and an interstellar refugee fleeing mm -hmm. war and a kind of illness that I, I, I'm not in, entirely sure like there's an illness associated with it could you give me a peek as to a, a little bit as, as a two-parter what what is what was this illness that they that they flee are and, you talking about end plague yes okay yeah. okay and continue and, sorry and and then um do we have will there be a chance for us to see more of this world in the future mm. well so the end plague is I think a lot easier to explain since the book has been published, unfortunately, than it is than it might have been earlier. The end plague was always that feeling, and I guess maybe this comes from Buddhism, that in the end we all return to nothing. It's this idea that the universe is going to go through a heat death. There's nothing we can do about it. And if that's the case, we all come to the same place. What does all of this art, what does all of this music, what all of the civilization actually mean? If at the end of all things, it never mattered in the first place. So it is kind of this grand nihilism that we come from nothing, we end as nothing. And there is no escape. There is no other dimension. There is, or even the other dimensions end. It's, it's there. Um, but um, 
I was thinking about this where nowadays um, you're looking at Roe v. Wade being rolled back. You're, we're looking at, it just seems like we're just not advancing the way we were supposed to. We were supposed to have flying cars. We were supposed to have you know, all kinds of really cool things. We were supposed to be having, we should be, we should be having colonies under the sea. We should be having a base on Mars right now. And we should be shooting somebody to Alpha Centauri at this. That's what they promised us. By now, this is where we should have gotten. We should have jetpacks. Do you have a jetpack? I don't have a jetpack. No. Instead, we're spending billions of dollars trying to like blow up people that we were trying to blow up a thousand years ago. It's just we're trying to, we can blow them up better now. And so um, the, the feeling as I'm getting older, realizing all of these hopes and ideals that we were dreaming of are just kind of um, very, very distant. The arc of justice, as uh, Martin Luther King might have said, is so far reaching. Sometimes it just seems like a straight line, um, you know, which is so my answer to that. And the way Life from Uncommon Stars works, and some of my other work that you're, you haven't seen yet works, is that as long as we're playing the music, we're okay. As long as we're as long as we're doing it in in the moment, um, you know, everybody's story will eventually end, but nobody's story has to be over yet. Well, I think it was Alan Watts that said something along the lines of no one dances to get to the end to no one listens to a song to be like, are we at the end yet? The mm-hmm. song is, is about being in that moment. And I, I, I kind of want to circle back to music for a second and have a bit Please. of fun here, uh, Rika, because we've uh, go figure science fiction authors listen to music and, uh, and the, uh, many of our listeners might know and Sam knows I love talking about music. I'm a big music guy. When you were teaching yourself how to play guitar and piano, what were you learning? Did you learn, you know, the let it be first? That was one of my first on a piano. Was it that kind of stuff? What mm. What is the music that you're listening to? Uh, what inspires you? Originally, a lot of good pop music. So a lot of so with um, with the guitar, for example, Neil Young, um, Ooh, because nice. Neil Young, the way Neil Young plays, you know, the, it. It would drive it drives a listener to heaven, and it drives a piano te- a, a guitar teacher to pull out their hair. Perfect, because I'm never going to be a great uh, guitar player. How can I be great without being great? So I ended up like listening to Neil Young and hearing that. Of course, later on, I found out that Neil Young was amazing. But at the time, it it was very approachable to me, and a lot of that um, with the piano, um, a lot. You caught me a lot of Beatles because it was nice. pretty simple and also a lot of the who I was playing a lot of who because mm-hmm. there, you know, it's just, you know, it's like one, four, five, you know, it was really, really easy to start going through. And, um, but also uh, I did um, a lot, uh, but also a lot of really simple things like Christmas carols and things to just, to make the music happen. I would hear a song on the radio and just try to sing it and then just try to play it. And, um, but I think that, yeah, if I look on my, if I look there at my old stuff, I see a giant book of the Beatles. I see a bunch of Neil Young. I see Tom Petty. I see Earth, Wind and Fire. <laughs> All the good stuff. Mm-hmm. But did you uh, listen to the new Beatles now and then? No, I, I ha- that 
I, I want, I just haven't had the time. I don't, yeah. I don't really have any reaction one way or the other. I know the, I know that there's controversy around that, but I say, why not? <laughs> Let's see what I can do. Have you listened oh, to it? Oh, it's nice to hear. Yeah, I have. I keep on getting text messages from my brother saying, what do you think now? It's, is it sinking in yet? Oh. And because uh, he's just wild with that stuff. My dad raised us on that, but I, I like it. It does sound like a John Lennon song. And mm -hmm. I, I do like John Lennon music, but it's very ballady. It's not um, the fun, playful stuff, but it's still good. But uh, that's really neat to hear, Rika, that uh, your inspirations. And are you listening when you write? Do you, are, do you have classical or film soundtracks? Oh, gosh. Not, okay. So when I'm listening, when I am writing, I can't listen to classical because I drift. Why, why, why write my own silly story when I'm listening to Chopin? I rather listen to Chopin because I'm sure that's much better than this draft. So uh, I listen to a lot of gaming music. I listen to anime music. I listen to music that's meant to accompany a story. Hmm. And so I will um, listen to, uh, you know, that there's this like the entire like tavern music that you can listen to that I guess D dungeon masters use and they can do their role playing too. And it gives everybody this kind of tavern feel. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this sort of thing um, I, I really enjoy. That's and fun. then um, I'll take a break uh, and put my writing down and go to the piano and play along with the music or maybe play some violin along with it and then come back mm -hmm. and write some more. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> and I know so soundtracks um and a lot of that love kind of bled into light from uncommon stars i listened to you know obviously i listened to the undertale uh, soundtrack undertale legend of zelda these are all beautiful beautiful things yeah and and what i love is um what i love about soundtracks in some ways it's what i want to do with my work as well they don't tell you they don't overload you with brilliance they give you space for you to think about things and when i'm writing work i don't want to overload you with story i want to overload you sometimes but there are times when i want to give these long spaces slow things down where you can be the writer where you can figure things out and this is how we dance so what's next so um right now i am working uh -huh. i think you know a lot of people have been asking um is there going to be a sequel to Light from Uncommon Stars? And I don't tend to write sequels, but I am writing spinoffs. Actually, Himele Ahilo and Light from Uncommon Stars take place in the same universe. Oh, I didn't notice that. Uh, uh, I, I told people follow the macaroni potato salad. Okay, they, you know there there are there is <laughs> there is that. And then um, my next book is going to take two very two minor characters from or what might one might think of as minor characters from light from uncommon stars and have them catalyze the entire next book. Um, the, I, I don't believe in side characters. I think that sometimes one of the pathologies that we have in this world is we treat people who aren't within our immediate circle as NPCs in this giant game that we're playing. Uh, but I've never liked that. You know, when I, when I walk past people, I think they might've had the same kind of problems I've had. They, you know, they had they're they're the main characters in their novels. So I think I don't write side characters. I write main characters, where some main characters are making cameos, special guest appearances in my book, and I treat them thusly. So with the next book, um, it is going to. I can't give away too much of the plot, but it's going to be a lot 
more fantastical and spacier than light from uncommon stars. Uh, there are going to be angels and gods in it trying to repair things because when you have space aliens coming into your world and your entire mythology had no clue that these space aliens existed, there's a problem here. This is the real mashup. Suddenly, nothing accounts for this and now things are broken. We have to go fix them. And so that's what the next book is going to be about. That sounds really good. I'm looking forward to reading that. And I, I just, I've got to ask, because we can't not talk about food here. I've it's never read a book a and we've been so, I've never <laughs> been so hungry, right? What, Yay! Like you you even made uh, a hot dog bun sound appetizing at one point. <laughs> oh, um, yeah. Uh, I believe a character was feeding ducks. Um, <laughs> I know exactly but, what you're talking and, about. And nachos and of course donuts. But And then you're talking about making bread this weekend. Um, uh, spoon bread. What, it, it's this, this custardy is... souffle thing that you bake and it's got all, sometimes with pork cracklings you just, oh, it's so good. You use them hot butter. But anyway, go on. Well, you've, you've, you've found a way to do something I don't think an, another author has done. We've We've heard about food in books before. Of course, it's we talk about food in books. We read about food in books. However, you've done something different here. Did you stumble across that or did you just say, it's me, I love food, I want that to be a part of my writing? It's not just me and I love food. Um, I've People call me a foodie and I go, I'm not really sure if I am, but um, I think they've convinced me. But I, I find that food is such a beautiful and rich um, indicator of culture and exchange of currency. You know, when I went away to... Um, to school, I was at Cornell University and I did my um, my writing degree. I got my MFA from Cornell University. What did I miss? I missed food. I miss things from home. So um, I think that we, uh, I figured out that, you know, they talk about, you know, man's heart is through his stomach, right? Uh, it works for readers too. Uh, a way to a reader's heart is to make not just that to make their mouths water you if you can make your reader hungry that means that you've reached into you've reached in deep and and touched them uh in a very intimate way and um i i really i can understand why people don't do that because they're i think in the golden age of science fiction beyond the fact that men don't talk about food at all uh, which is mostly true actually um, I also think that we wanted to get out of the kitchen. We wanted to eat our food through a tube. It was modern. We, we, it was like kitchens were, were these things that we didn't want to think about. In space, we're going to eat pills and all of that. I think we're more sophisticated than that now. And ironically, the part of that sophistication is a Mars colony is going to be a lot nicer if there's, you know, bacon. And, <laughs> yeah. and I want to bring that in because uh, part of the reason we're alive is we want to listen to the Beatles. We want to listen to good music. We want to run very fast. We want to play games. We want to read and imagine. We, we love these things. And another art form is cooking. A lot, another thing that ties us to places is cooking. So um, that's that's something that I really um, always want to use as a humanizer, as, as this idea that these are these are even when they're aliens, even when they're angels, even when they're queens of hell, they're still in some ways human, and that's how I, that's how I've come to it. And uh, well, I'm good with it. 
I want to thank you for your time and for so well. Might I add one more thing here? Please mm-hmm. do, of course. Okay, I wanted to tell folks. Um, a lot of folks have asked, have suggested that science fiction, the field of science fiction and fantasy, has become more inclusive and it's evolving. Hmm. These are two different things. <laughs> we have to remember, evolving. What is evolution? Evolution doesn't mean that we're going to get smarter and more and more and wiser and more adept at what we do. Evolution will do exactly what it's always done, settle for what works. The reason we have all that we have is because we have a survival advantage. But evolution doesn't always mean things are going to get better. Sometimes evolution, we can lose traits that we gained. Birds can stop flying. Um, Animals can, large animals can become small and weak. Things happen. Evolution works all sorts of different ways. So if we want our beloved science fiction and fantasy community to continue to move in a certain way, Uh, evolution does what works. So we're going to have to put in the work. I urge all of you to support the writers that you love and to advocate for them and to um, let them know uh, how much their work means to you. And for those of us who are writers, I say the same thing, to let the fans and readers know how much we are grateful and we're honored by them. And if we can continue doing this, we can work and evolve our community uh, to become even more special than it is now. Thank you so much for joining us today. We hope that you enjoyed that episode with Rika. She is a very special person and we really appreciate the time she gave us. Listeners, thank you so much. We hope that you can join us soon. Thanks for joining us today. Until next time.